It's Thursday, February the 24th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up... Fish and chips, it's one of our greatest staple meals. It could soon soar to £10 per portion. Share prices slump, of course, because of the invasion of Ukraine. The government's published fuel poverty statistics. They're going to get a lot worse when the fuel prices soar in April. But there is a suggestion the figures are already two years out of date. How Boris Johnson can target the laundromat of dirty Russian money in the city of London. But first, I'm talking to a former ambassador to Russia about what, if anything, can be done diplomatically to try to stay the hand of Vladimir Putin as his troops move forward in Ukraine. So it's finally happened. Russia has launched the invasion of Ukraine. Reports of explosions near major cities across the country early today. Hundreds of Ukrainian troops are reported killed in early clashes. The country's president, Zelensky, in an address to the nation, says the history of Ukraine has changed forever and Russia is trying to destroy the state. Joining me now is Sir Tony Brenton, who was British ambassador to Russia between 2004 and 2008. Sir Tony, we've talked about this before. Uh, it's finally happened. Um, is it as bad as you expected? Well, I didn't expect it. I frankly thought that Putin was far too cautious to engage in this sort of operation. So I'm still rebalancing myself slightly. And yes, it's bad. Um, this will be the largest war in Europe probably since the, the Second World War. Um, it's a, an unprovoked attack on a, on a, on a peaceful nation. So in, in all of those forms, it, it, it's very bad indeed. And it's a, a reversion to a, a style of um, international business which we, we had hoped had passed. In the past few days, President Putin, there's been much con- uh, comment about his demeanour, his manner, um, with the Defence Secretary saying he's gone tonto, uh, Ben Wallace. We know what he really meant, that he's gone mad. Uh, yeah, you, I, what do you think? You've met no, the guy. I don't, I, don't, I, I don't think he's gone mad. Um, I do think he's become slightly unbalanced on the yes. issue of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and I think that lack of balance is likely to play out in the military operations and what follows them looking forward. Um, but he, for example, I do not think that the operation which is currently underway in Ukraine is likely to extend to adjacent members of NATO right. because NATO is a, an alliance with 10 times the military power of Russia. And if Russia attacked one of them, then it would get into a war which it would lose. I think that also, I mean, Putin has been prompted in this direction by what, from the Russian point of view, are very rational considerations which actually comes back to the fact that NATO is 10 times as powerful as Russia. Russia sees NATO as a threat. We don't think of it as such, but they no. do. And they've been saying that to us since the collapse of the Soviet Union, and we've been ignoring them. And that is one of the factors that has brought us to where we are now. Were we right to ignore them, Satoni? We know, you know, NATO is a defences organisation, but um, Vladimir Putin is ex-KGB. He's very proud. He's never come to terms with the collapse of the Soviet Union. He's always wanted to get Ukraine back under that umbrella. Um, so should we perhaps have been have heeded more what Russia said in the same way perhaps we should have heeded more what Germany said after the end of the First World War? Absolutely right. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, interestingly, sent a message in 1985 to um, Gorbachev at a time when Perestroika was just getting going which said, we know that you have as much right as we do to feel secure. Mm. We have not acted according to that very sensible message, sadly. Interesting. And that's, that was then, and here we are now, and that's why 
Putin um, will argue, I su- is arguing, isn't he, Tony, that there are so many NATO troops now have expanded eastwards and they're very close to his border. That's right. That's exactly his view. Now, I'm not saying that that justifies, a, as I say, an unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, but it's undoubtedly part of the background psychology. And looking forward a bit, that raises the issue. I mean, Putin has now launched his war. If he loses it, then we're on one track, which I suspect is a track which results in the end of the Putin presidency. If he wins it, we're on a track where he has to force, he said he's going to demilitarize Ukraine, which I assume means he's going to make the country neutral, um, for which he has to change the Ukrainian constitution. He basically has to take over the entire Ukrainian political process. So there's a lot of extraordinarily difficult stuff on his agenda, even if they win. And we're going to hate all of it and disapprove of all of it. So I see confrontation going on for some significant time to come. Well, I I was going to ask you that because we know Ukraine is much better armed than it was in 2014 when the Russians first went into those two states. Uh, They've been armed by Britain and other uh, allies and they're planning to fight back. And they're a brave and doughty uh, nation. And if they are heading for Kiev, that would be very difficult for Russia. I really don't know. I mean, that's a matter for military judgment. I'm slightly cautious about believing statements that any army is very good or very bad. You will remember that before Afghanistan finally collapsed, we were being told by the Americans that they'd rearmed and retrained and Mm. re-equipped all of the Afghanistan army, and it vanished in a week. Now, I'm not predicting that for Ukraine, or I wasn't heartened by all those newspaper photographs of people training with wooden rifles. Um, I hope that they put up an effective defense and stop the Russians. But I'm not entirely sure that that will be the case, not least because Putin will not have taken the action he's taken without assurance from his generals that, they, that they're going to win. Diplomatically, that's your area, Sir Tony. What now can the United States, NATO, Britain, the European Union, what can they do, if anything? Well, I mean, what we're talking about doing um, is, of course, massive condemnation, which is going to go on, getting lots of lots of members of the international community to do that, which we will also do, although there will be limits. We're not going to get China on board, no. for example. And what, what um, the Prime Minister has described as economic sanctions which will hobble Russia. Now, even if that's achievable, and I rather suspect that it isn't, uh, it's going to take a long time. That's not going to get in the way of the war reaching whatever outcome it gets to. So for the, for the duration of the war, for the duration of military operations, there's nothing effective that we can do. We can hope that in the longer term, and Jeremy Hunt's been very good on this, we can hope that in the longer term we can impose economic constraints which make it harder for Russia to take this sort of action in the future. The other area which I don't think anybody's been talking about much is that the war gets started. There will inevitably be calls for a ceasefire reasonably quickly. It's already started from the UN and so on. If we, the West, could say to Putin, we want to go for a ceasefire, We know you don't trust us or like us or any of that. But if, as a condition from the ceasefire, we could commit ourselves to never letting Ukraine into NATO, that might actually give him pause. And would that be seen as the right thing to do or would it be seen as a form of appeasement? I think a lot of people would would dismiss it as appeasement. But one of the difficult things in... Well, I mean, J.K. Galbraith once said that um, uh, all politics is a choice between the distasteful and the disastrous. Yes. Appeasement, if you call it that, negotiation is what I would call it. Uh, appeasement, if you call it that, as I say, is distasteful. War, which is what we've now got, could well be disastrous. Shouldn't we have done that, though, before he yes, let those tanks roll into Ukraine? 
Yeah, I mean, in the, we've just had a month of quite close negotiations with Russia where um, the West has made absolutely minimal concessions in the direction that Russia has been looking for. Um, ridiculously, actually, because Ukraine isn't going to join NATO for the next 20 years anyway. Oh, Why no. on earth we couldn't yeah. have ourselves to say that in some formal way is a mystery to me. But our unwillingness to make even the most minimal recognition of what Russia's looking for, Russia's security concerns, is undoubtedly part of the background to where we are now. Indeed. It's a mess, Satoni. Uh, we're very glad you've come on to talk to us, and I suspect we'll be talking to you again because I don't think this is going to be over any time soon, do you? No, I don't, I'm afraid. All right, that's Satoni Brenton, the former British ambassador to Russia between 2004 and 2008. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So Boris Johnson, in his televised address to the nation today, vowed to hit Russia with, quote, a massive package of sanctions which he says will hobble Moscow's economy. This follows the invasion of Ukraine by land, sea and air. The Prime Minister said the Russian president had unleashed war in our European continent with a hideous and barbaric venture. Uh, He says that the government is preparing a raft of measures to tackle Putin's wealth and to try to prevent any further military incursions. Bill Browder is chief executive and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management, and he's an anti-corruption campaigner. He's also author of the book Red Notice, a true story of corruption, murder, and how I became Putin's number one enemy. And he joins me now. Bill, we still don't know what more the Prime Minister is going to bring forward, uh, but he did say yesterday, and he said it again today, there'll be tougher sanctions. What does he have to do, in your view, to really make the Russian president wince? Well, that's the, that, that is the exact um, question, which is we need to do something which is going to cause Putin pain. So what, what will make things painful for Vladimir Putin? And I would say first and foremost is his money. Putin has spent the last 20 years as president stealing as much money as he could possibly get from the Russian state and from the Russian people. And that money he doesn't keep in Russia. He keeps it with oligarchs, trustees, and they hold that money in the West. And one of the primary locations where they hold that money is the UK. So if we really want to cause Putin to wince, and we should make him do more than wince based on what he's done, we need to freeze the assets of the oligarchs. And that's what Boris Johnson needs to do today. Is it complicated, though, because, uh, um, I mean, your book is an extraordinary book and um, Putin has got very clever financial advisors and he's got these skillful oligarchs presumably concealing money. Is it easy to freeze the assets? Do we know where their money is? Well, so this is the beauty of, of, um, of how these sanctions work. The government doesn't have to know where the money is. The government right. just has to say, we're going to freeze the assets of the following oligarchs who we believe are trustees of Vladimir Putin. And we know who these people are. Once those people's name are on a list, then it's the duty of every financial institution, uh, real estate broker, um, and other type of person in the UK, not to do business with them, not to transact with them, because those people will then be in violation of the law. And so the government is effectively just sending out a notice to every bank and financial institution to say that any client of yours who is... Um, one of these people, their money is frozen. And if, it, and if you do anything with that money, you're in trouble. 
What if they get the wrong oligarch? Does that matter? Well, I mean, it, it, there's so many of them. <laughs> there, there's so much low-hanging fruit here. They yeah. don't have to get every single oligarch. Um, all they have to do is pick and, and, and uh, pick a few. I yeah. mean, the thing about Russia, which is so odd, is that so few people hold all the money. And so you, you, don't, have to, you, know, you don't really have to make that, that, that sanction thousands of people. You can sanction 50 people, and you kind of achieve the objective. And, and this, anybody who knows Russia knows Vladimir Putin has been screaming this for the last few months. I've been screaming from the rooftops, yep. and so yep. have all other people who are truly expert on this. It's so obvious, and it just hasn't been done. And if we, if we had done it beforehand, if we had just sanctioned a few of them to show Putin we were serious, he might not have even crossed the border. They can do it now. How quickly can they do it, Bill? They can do it with a stroke of the pen right. in the next hour. It's easy as that. It's as easy as that. How much do you think, Putin, uh, your book is um, uh, a, a must-read if you want to know just how corrupt this terrible man Vladimir Putin is. How much do you think he has s- sorted away with these uh, oligarch trustees? Well, I testified to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee in 2017 that his net worth was $200 billion, and that was uh, five years ago. And so I think we're talking about a number far in excess of that. I mean, he's truly one of the richest men in the world. And, and it's, it's quite obvious that these household names of Russian oligarchs are not, these people aren't nearly as wealthy as we see them on paper because a lot of that money is Vladimir Putin. What, do, what can anybody do with 200 billion pounds? Well, they can um, go around and buy, buy British politicians who will then lobby against any tough actions against Russia. And they can j- jam up the property of, of London uh, London property prices so that um, normal British people can't live in the center of London. They can do all sorts of things, and they do all sorts of things, and we see them all over the place. The European Union um, has targeted 27 uh, key figures, including some people who are actually part of Putin's kitchen cabinet. I don't know how wealthy they are or not. Was that a significant move in your view? Well, it's, it's, uh, some of the names on the EU sanctions list um, are quite good. Yeah, um, It's not a very long list. The list needs to be a lot longer. And, but what is significant is that the EU did something because the EU has been paralyzed to do anything for the longest time. Yeah. The EU requires unanimity among its members to do any sanctions. And there's a bunch of bad guys in the European Union, yeah. like Hungary. the uh, Prime Minister of Hungary, who are sure. on the payroll. Um, and in Britain, um, just finally, we've so far we've had three named individuals, but we know they weren't very terribly effective because they'd already been sanctioned by the United States. So what money they had, they probably distributed somewhere else. How many people do you think really, if the prime minister is serious when he says he's going to uh, hit Putin and Russia with a massive package of sanctions, how many named individuals and banks does he need to um, uh, attack? It's not so, many, so much the, the number, it's, the, it's who he actually who goes are. after. Yeah. You know, so he, he can pick 50 names out of the phone book and say, we've done a massive thing, um, and those people could be nobodies. Or he, he can pick 15 names of the biggest oligarchs out there, and that will completely upset Putin. And so it's just a question of having the backbone to go after the people who matter. And so far, we haven't seen that happen. He could always read your book, because that would give him all the information he needs. Well, it'd be a good place to start. He certainly would. That's Bill Browder. He's chief executive of Hermitage Capital Management and he's author of, it's great stuff, Red Notice, A True Story of Corruption, Murder and How I Became Putin's Number One Enemy. Bill, if you are his number one enemy, do be careful. 
So, with fuel prices soaring, petrol prices soaring, energy and gas bills potentially going up by 50%, the government's published new figures which show 13% of households have already fallen into fuel poverty. But are those figures accurate? According to National Energy Action, the real level of poverty is actually much higher. Joining me now is Peter Smith, National Energy Action's Director of Policy and Advocacy. Peter Smith. Uh, Peter... There's often a lag, isn't there, in the fuel poverty figures. Is that what's going on here? Yes, that's right. There's a two-year lag in the data, and these figures are largely already out of date. The figures that we've seen are just for England, um, not uh, across uh, GB, where the recent price increases uh, in October have already hit, and uh, the bigger increases are likely in April. Um, and uh, it doesn't take account of um, the what's coming. Uh, and um, and we know that um, millions of households are now going to be exposed to increases in energy bills of over 50% from April. Uh, and these figures just don't don't highlight the scale of the current energy crisis. And, and the problem with the government's um, package of measures, so the £150 April council tax rebate doesn't help low-income households who are already exempt from paying council tax. That's absolutely right. So um, we estimate that the... That the council tax rebate really won't have any impact in terms of uh, directly supporting households to reduce their living costs because they're largely exempt uh, already or, or receive a large discount um, and they're but still struggle with the, uh, the cost of uh, essentials. Um, in addition, um, there's a long time between April uh, and October when the second element of the government's mm. package kicks in this heat now pay later yes. uh, rebate. Um, and um, yeah, it, that that mechanism um, isn't going to work in the interests of particularly the poorest households. Yeah, I mean, and, and the fact is, bills are going up in April by what are we expecting? The average household's been paying almost £700 a year more. And that, as you say, heat now, pay later kicks in in October. But it's a loan anyway, and it's going to be recouped over five years. How do the government get that money back from, from householders? Is it the energy company has to just put it on, make the bills higher? Or I'm not sure the mechanism they're going to use. Well, for five years, the government intends to claw £40 back, um, particularly out of um, the, the fingers of some of the poorest households. I think this is a really unacceptable form of mitigation for high energy prices. And, and although any support uh, should be welcomed... The, the, the support is going to kick in October and it's almost going to be annihilated straight away by higher energy prices. The, 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 the mechanism itself will be an additional levy on consumer bills. And um, we know that the government's inclination is to take that out of, a, uh, out of the standing charge. So a flat rate that everybody pays, irrespective of their income, their usage or their, their payment type. That's a decision that will particularly impact those households that um, pay via a prepayment meter. Um, because they've essentially got to pay those large standing charges, which have been mm. growing irrespective of this um, heat now, pay later mechanism year on year. Uh, and they'll need to pay that before they can access any units of energy. So, so the standing charge, which we already think is outrageous, most of us, will be even higher. And the energy company then ret- return the extra levy <clears throat> to the Treasury. Is that the plan? <laughs> That's the government's plan. But in, in the face of the soaring uh, VAT receipts that they're going to receive yeah. as a result of higher energy prices, I think it is time for um, 
or we're already seeing some um, uh, outrage from members of the public, either because they don't feel that they need uh, sort of a, a mandated universalism <laughs> that this that this imposes on them, um, or um, their means are such that they're terrified of getting into further debt to, uh, to their energy supplier. So uh, uh, particularly with the crisis in, uh, in Ukraine and what's that, what that's yeah. doing to... Well, that's going to put prices up prices. even more. Yeah, exactly. I think the Chancellor's got no choice but to come back to this and look for a far more uh, adequate uh, settlement, uh, particularly to protect the poorest households. And just on that, Peter, <clears throat> we've got a budget in March. We know that uh, one thing he could do, which is very easy, uh, now we're no longer members of the European Union, he could lop the 5% off the, the VAT off our energy bills. That would be a start, at least. Well, it, that would be a start. And um, there are other um, short-term uh, uh, fixes. And the, um, the critique prior to well, the government's own critique prior to their intervention would be uh, was that this would be a rather blunt mechanism. Yeah. And those households with the highest energy usage would see the biggest, yes, the biggest benefit. I, get that. Uh, I, I, I don't uh, I don't know whether or not that that critique could be um, uh, would be uh, addressed um, if, if he was just to rely on that solely. But there are a range of things that the government can do, even at this late hour, to ameliorate the April increases, let alone those price increases that are going to jack up prices even further in October. What would be your favourite way, favourite thing they could do? I think, first of all, they've got to sort out this uh, heat now, pay later yeah. um, provision. They've got to look um, to make sure that the poorest households don't need to repay that support, particularly for prepayment customers. That's just... Uh, otherwise the situation is going to be worse for households not better they've then got to look at what they can do uh, in terms of extending and expanding existing programs the winter fuel payment provides a payment for the poorest uh, sorry the oldest um, pensioners of over 300 pounds per per year that could be easily extended to working age households there's about 2.4 million um, working age households across the uk that can easily be identified and we could be providing that 300 pounds to them we can also um, look to uh, make sure that the protection in the energy market that those um, that the households on the lowest incomes receive is adequate. And then finally, um, the, you kind of reference the sort of immediate steps that, um, that the UK government can take. And whilst we support some of the levies on consumer bills, which are helping to pay for things like rebates for poorer pensioners or, or energy efficiency, which is permanently reducing energy costs, there's some real dead weight on the bill. Um, and uh, legacy costs for um, previous uh, ways that we've looked to subsidise renewables could be removed and paid for out of general taxation without causing any detriment to the government's uh, ambitions to reach net zero but save all households about £90 on their bill. So there's a spectrum of things yeah. that the UK government can do. They've just got to um, recognise the scale of this situation and, in particular, how it will impact the poorest households and act appropriately. Absolutely. Interesting stuff and always, uh, always good advice. That's Peter Smith, who's Director of Policy and Advocacy at National Energy Action. Time now for our regular City Update with Ruth Sunderland, Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Uh, Ruth, it was predictable, shares sinking across the world on news of the invasion of Ukraine. How badly is the London stock market affected? So um, the London stock market, in common with all the other stock markets around the world, have been hit, as you say. 
it's actually not um, a complete and utter rout. I mean, you know, nobody likes falling share prices and particularly on top of having had quite a rocky time um, with worries about tech stocks and also about rising interest rates and just the fallout from the pandemic. So um, we've lost about 3.2% um, at the moment, um, a bit more on the French index, the, the CAC index, that's down about 435 the German DAX, Germany, obviously, they're a bit um, more exposed through their energy markets than we are. They're down by about 5% today as we speak. Um, American markets, we'll see what happens there as the day progresses. Obviously, they're, they're in, in a different time zone, so we'll see how trading beds down there. One very interesting thing, though, is that although our markets are suffering, the Russian financial system seems to be really skidding um, as a result of the invasion of Ukraine. So there's a bit of karma there. The Russian central bank has had to intervene. Um, they've had to purchase millions of rubles on the markets to try to prevent the collapse of the stock exchange in Moscow and to try to prop up the currency because obviously people are concerned about sanctions but also traders are just pulling assets out of out of russia so the central bank there has had to mount a rescue operation on the ruble so um very tumultuous times there are of course um people here including um some of our colleagues actually who, who've got investments in russian investment trusts um so you know they'll be quite exposed the shares yeah. of those companies will be very vulnerable around um 30 russian companies list on the uk stock market um now i would certainly have a question around those companies as to why on earth are they still up and trading you know a lot of people would say we shouldn't have allowed them to list in, mm. in the first place um but i certainly think those companies would be looking quite vulnerable fortunately our banks are not very badly exposed that's that's a big route into um you know infecting the rest of the financial system but a lot of volatility out here you know it used to be said buy on the sound of gunfire i think you'd have to be quite a brave person yes. um, to be to be doing that to be doing that in this scenario and, and presumably the russian stock market has crashed as well ruth yes so um the russian stock exchange the main stock exchange um, it reopened, it fell by about 30%. Mm. Um, there's something else, another index called the MSCI index of shares in Russian companies that's traded in New York and in London, that dropped by 45%. So that does put into perspective the losses that we've seen um, here um, on the UK markets. Now, you know, it's interesting all of this, Andrew, because President Putin has had quite a bit of time to prepare yes. his economy for for sanctions and for economic turmoil and it's interesting that, that there have been such dramatic reactions despite that so it will obviously be a war fought in in, the, in a you know in a military way but the financial markets are also going to be a key battleground in all of this really important battleground too ruth because we all know that putin is very motivated by money not the not the money of the russian economy his own money Absolutely. And he, you know, be very, I'd be very interested to, to um, unravel his finances. Obviously, you, you, you're, you're never going to do it. And you, you'll also, I think, see um, more interest in the oligarchs that are over here. You're, yeah. you're, they'll be facing huge scrutiny. Meanwhile, for other investors seeking safety, it's, it's what we call, without 
speak without wanting to, to blaspheme, blaspheme, sorry, God, G-O-D, gold, oil and dollars. Um, that's where people are, are, are looking. So um, safe havens, you know, lot of safe havens, a lot of tumult on the markets as we speak. And, you know, I think we have to be braced for that to continue. All right. That's Ruth Sunderland, Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. Thanks as ever for joining us. Fish and chips, which is one of Britain's most traditional meals, is about to get a whole lot more expensive. Soaring costs of cod and mushy peas are pushing prices up. There are warnings the takeaway favourite could soon be £10 a portion. Joining me now is Andrew Crook, who's president of the National Federation of Fish Friars. Andrew, we've got rising costs everywhere. Uh, we, h- How bad is it for you? Do you think we are going to soon have to pay £10 for fish and chips? It's certainly going to drive prices up, I fear. We've been uh, absorbing price increases for a long time. Um, you know, everything's going up across the board, but... I think with fish and chips, we've we've always worked on such a narrow margin that that we've always felt the pain of VAT, and and now the rest of hospitality are, are asking for the same thing because their costs are going up as well. Obviously, we're feeling more pain because the margins are that tight, and it, we do have a, a, a difficulty charging what maybe we should do for, yeah. the, for the cost of the ingredients. Expl- can you explain, Andrew, why cod is becoming se- as as much as seventy five more ex- percent more expensive? Yeah, well, there's, there's been a reduction in quota. I'm actually in Iceland at the moment. I've just had lunch with, with a vessel owner, in, uh, obviously talking about the, the current situation. It's, it's top of the agenda. Yeah. Uh, so there's quite bad catching at the moment, especially the larger fish. They're catching smaller fish. Um, the trawlers, are, the vessels are having to go further. Not so much the Icelandic ones, because the water's deep around Iceland, but the ones that fish in the Berent Sea are having to travel further to find the fish. Uh, and it is the last hunting commodity. You know, people have to go out and find it. So yeah, of course. It, it, it is subject to, to variation more than any or most of the commodities. Uh, and, but we, it is a it's a premium product, and we, we've got to look at it the same way we look at steak and and and, and respect the fish as a, a premium protein that that's uh, a quality product. And why exactly are mushy? What's happened to the price of mushy peas? Have almost doubled. Yeah, again, I think it, it's market forces, and, and you know, I think we're probably going to experience a similar thing with potatoes next year because farmers are finding it difficult to, to get staff to work on, on, on their farms across the, across the world. It's not just this country, and I think, I think the, the ramifications of, of, of uh, COVID is, is having a knock-on effect to where we didn't expect it, and it's, it just seems to be every commodity, plus obviously the fuel costs and, and yeah. goods around... It, it, it's all just increasing the price of everything so it is very tough out there i mean and and f- I, I i i we knew there would be a problem with picking f- food and fruit in this country because some people went back after brexit and some people went back because of covid went back to their homes but why is that a problem in other parts of the world as well in your view andrew uh, I, I just think people don't want to do that kind of work sure. um i used to have a potato processing uh, factory and we had a lot of polish stuff but I think they can earn good wages at home as well now. So many of them have gone back home and are working there. But, uh, you know, we, we need to, I, I always enjoyed that kind of work. You're at one with your thoughts, but it's not for yeah. everybody. I don't mind rolling my sleeves up, you see. So. Quite right, too. Now, of course, VAT is an issue, too, because it was cut because of COVID to try and help certain industries, hospitality, tourism. I think in April it's going back to 20%. Yeah, that, well, that's the plan at the moment. We're asking government to to just hold that, that increase and then sit around the table with us. 
we, we work with government uh, on all sorts of uh, subjects, especially through uh, COVID. Uh, we help get hospitality open again because uh, government departments realise we're the experts in our sector. And, but when it comes to taxation, they don't seem to want to talk about it. And all we want to do is, is get a system. VAT has been on takeaway through for 38 years and very little change apart from the rate going up. And it, it's, it's nearly 50 years old as VAT itself. Yeah. And the system doesn't work. It encourages fraud. It uh, stifles the businesses that are doing everything right. So paying the staff well, investing in the business, training. Um, and what we've seen with the, the lower rate of VAT is giving businesses the money to invest in training, invest in equipment. And all that money is then picked up in the taxation system somewhere else, you know, further down the chain. So I think there's definitely room for, for uh, having a look at a, a way of making the system work better, like they have done in many countries in Europe. Yeah, yeah. And and, and just on uh, finally on this, Andrew, because fish and chips, it's as popular as ever, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a lovely meal, and it's part, part of the, the nation's uh, culture. It's a bit like the boulangeries in France, where people go out for the bread. Um, yeah. We are trying to keep the prices down. We are trying to keep it a, 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 an affordable meal. But unfortunately, the, the cost of the, the raw ingredients is just uh, go, going so high that you know, we can't absorb any more. And as I said, the jump in VAT is going to put even more pressure on. So, you know, we, it's still people love it. And I love seeing children coming in and uh, having a, a small fish or a children's meal, uh, fish and chips. And it's, you know, that's great. It's showing the next generation of, uh, of customers and people carrying on the... Uh, the traditional dish. Well, I, I wish you luck with your campaign with the Chancellor on the VAT because we have to defend a great British institution and you are it, Mr Crook, as the National Federation of Fish Fryers President. Fish and Chips is a great national institution and must be defended. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'm going to be back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.